What's going on, guys? What's going on? We're back with another episode of the Gundog Notebook. Um, this one is going to be exciting. I was really looking forward to doing this episode with um, Ryan Mulcahy, English Pointer Trainer. Um, but before we get started, I kind of wanted to go ahead and talk about some of the changes and you know updates to the Gundog Notebook. Of course, I already announced and I want to keep talking about it a bit more. Some of the things I'm excited about is uh, Dakota 283 Kennels as our new sponsor. Some of the things that I'm excited about with Dakota 283 because they're sending me a uh, G3 frame door kennel. <laughs> Very nice kennel, actually. Um, it's kind of, it, it, there's a lot of features, but I kind of want to talk about three main ones um, that I'm just really looking forward to and it's going to put me at ease in a lot of different areas. So, Number one, what I'm doing, um, there's a molded in handle on the top of the kennel and that actually makes portability really easy and getting that thing on and off the truck. But also for the way that I strap down my kennel, um, now the current one that I have, yeah, it's not the most comfortable thing in the world because of uh, the handles on it are, are screwed in and sometimes I, I just worry about the way that that gets ratchet strapped down. So with the, the G3, the handle is just, it's, it's just all one piece. That's actually really smart if you think about it. So that's one of the things that I'm looking forward to. Like the other one is the frame door. With the, uh, the slam door system versus the pin system. I do not have to use a pin system anymore. Thank you, Greg Cronkite. Um, so my issue with the pin system is that sometimes I might be moving too fast or, you know, after working with Ruger, send him in his kennel, and I think I'll push both of the pins and, and it's kind of, you have to really think about lining them up. So I might be moving too fast and I have to take the extra thought to remember to double check the pin. Now I can just push it shut and it, it just shuts. Like, it's not that deep anymore. Um, also, it has a lot on it already versus me using a padlock. Like, that padlock really bothers me when I'm out. You know, I'm out in another town or something like that. I'm not too familiar with people. What if somebody clips my padlock? And yeah, yeah I think about things like that. But now I don't have that problem. Um that that just really means a lot that Greg is sending me this kennel. Um, I'm really excited. And I'm also supposed to be getting another piece that he hasn't. I don't think he's released it yet. But um, I'll tell you all about that when I get it. There's a I don't want to say it too soon. But I get a chance to try it out first. Um, so this one is going to be for the new puppy. Um, what I'm also thinking about doing, a kennel is large enough, is... Kennel and Ruger and the pup in it for a second. Um, I kind of want to kill the pup's anxiety about being in a kennel, and Ruger's pretty good about working with pups. Sit right here. So, because I mean, it's big enough to do so and have that pup kind of sleep on it for a second. Just kind of let the dogs get to know each other. So, anyway, I got a lot of plans for this kennel. Anyway, if you guys want to kind of take advantage of this code I got for you, it's a promo code. Um, it lasts through February and all the way through March. And uh, the deal is that you get to buy one kennel and you'll get a second Dining Dash uh, or Dash 3.5 or a Dash 5.0 for 50% off, which is a, a pretty good deal considering the price of these kennels. Um, the code is all caps, uh, TGDN50DD. All right, so that lasts all the way through February and March. Guys, I'm really hoping y'all take advantage of some of the codes that I'm giving you. If you listen to me or Tyler Webster, um, both of us work with Dakota 283, and it's definitely an exciting thing. So for my new folks out there that are looking for a kennel, um, it might be smart to... Especially if you're like, if you're about to get a new dog like me or something like that, it's about to be spring puppy season. Look into Dakota 283. 
um, you guys can take advantage of that code. And just as, as always, thanks to Greg Cronkite for um, introducing me to Dakota 283 and getting me hooked up. Like, that was cool. That was really cool. And it's going to reflect in the work that I do, you know, for hunting and, and fishing. So, anyway, um, that's Dakota 283 Kennels, guys. The code, again, is capital TGDN. Five zero DD. All right. Got a little margarita going. So anyway, my next uh, my next thing I kind of want to talk about is the Pride Dog Food. Okay, I uh, I'm excited also again because I just picked up some more feed, some new feed from Mike Carr today. I got a chance to uh, stop by on my lunch break at work on his uh, route through the doing doing his runs and making deliveries I got a chance to catch up with him and uh, pick up my new puppy food gotta have food for the dog so that's something that I'm just really really excited about um, it's a 30-20 blend that's 30 30% protein and 20% fat um, for the puppies uh, the good thing is, of course, you know, with little puppy mouths, the bits are smaller. That's one of the major differences between that and what I'm feeding them now. Ruger's getting a little bit more than that, but um, that'll last for a good little minute. Um, and then I'll transition them to what Ruger's eating. But anyway, um, Mike was really cool. I appreciate it. He was actually, once he does, does his deliveries, he's going to a field trial, running, judging something like 600 uh, pounds. He runs fox hounds. Uh, I couldn't imagine judging 600 dogs, but anyway, <laughs> also, um, I wanted to talk more about the pride and some of the new things that's coming out with them. I've kind of been in the new a little bit, but, uh, some of the things that are already out are, um, not already out, but just came out. They're new. They are out though. Um, there's an ultra premium formula. All right. It's it's a number of different blends. I got like sal uh, salmon and uh, vegetable recipes, grain free turkey and uh, vegetable chicken meal and rice formula. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> dogs eat some of them eat you know better than some people I know. Like Jesus Christ. But anyway, um, check it out if you ever get a chance. Go to the pride doc the pride dog food dot com. Um, Also, I wanted to say about the pride, some of the things that I appreciate about it, it really helped my dog Ruger with his stamina and endurance. Um, that was something that I was really big on as far as getting him to uh, hunt all day. I talk about that a lot. Um, his poop looks good. I, I know that sounds weird. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But you got to look at your dog's poop. Um, he's got a lot of prebiotics, probiotics, stuff like that in these, uh, new ultra premium blends. It's a very good feed, whether you've heard of that, whether you've heard of it or whether you've not, um, I'm very, very, very impressed and continue impressed by the service for Mike, um, how dog oriented he is. He's a real dog man, which I appreciate that. Um, so yeah. Check out the Pride Dog Food. That's if you want to get in contact with Mike. Um, that's my connection to the Pride. Let me know. Just email me at uh, the Gun Dog Notebook at gmail.com. You can let me know, and I'll send you his way. He's a really nice guy. Um, very very easy to talk to. We'll contact you, you know, as soon as he can immediately. Um, so anyway. My last thing is when that puppy comes, when I go get him, I should say, um, I'm going to be doing an interview with his breeder, Gary Surratt. That's going to be cool. So I hope you guys are looking forward to that one. I kind of want to document this puppy's progress um, as he grows up, especially on the podcast and kind of talk a bit more about training and stuff. Um, I'm going to be working this dog towards field trials. I know that. Uh, likely working this dog in NAVDA too. I think I, I'm, I'm hoping that I get a very talented dog. So anyway, um, of course that dog is going to 
gonna be eating the pride and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's it's gonna be very good. It'll be in a it'll be in a Dakota two eighty three kennel. This dog is coming up in the world very quickly. <laughs> so anyway, Ruger over here is still gonna be my main my main compadre. That's gonna be my co captain. We're gonna get this little dog right. But anyway. I hope you guys enjoy this episode with uh, Ryan Mulcahy. It's it's going to be in two parts. I'll post both of them, you know, as soon as I can, back to back. Um, enjoy, man. Enjoy, enjoy the information. He he really threw some some nuggets out there. So anyway, um, thank y'all again, and I will see you in part two of the episode. All right, we've got another episode of the Gundog Notebook Podcast Guy. And um, guys, we have a very, very, very special guest, um, Ryan Mulcahy. Got it right that time. <laughs> From Born to Run Kennels. And just to preface this, I am extremely English pointer biased right now to all of my listeners. And this is going to be one of those episodes. <laughs> so anywho, Ryan, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Cool, man. Cool. Well, we all like talking bird dogs and you were just somebody like even watching your Instagram story today, like you had those dogs out there and the tails were all up. And beforehand, we got introduced um, to each other by um, you actually left a comment about the uh, woe barrel that I'm planning on using and you use a plank. And that's kind of how this whole thing got started. So yeah. just to preface yeah. this, Ryan, of course, I always want to start with your background and things like that, because you actually have a very interesting history, um, especially in the relation in relation to track and field. So start from the beginning. Um, so <clears throat> from the beginning, I, I grew up in northern Pennsylvania, um, mm-hmm. about 20 miles from the New York state border. Um, and. I did not grow up with uh, pointers or uh, bird dogs. Um, I grew up with coonhounds and quite mm. a few of them. My my uh, man after my own heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I, kind What kind uh, of coonhounds? Walkers. Ah uh, yes, we're. My dad has run walkers in English for, um, and and he had some other ones sprinkled in there. But when I was a kid, it was uh, he had some really good English, and then he went to walkers only. Hmm. And um, he's been running for about 63 years. Now, why did he go to walkers only? I love walker hounds. At some point in my life, I want to get another one because I had a trash one before. But mm-hmm. why Why did he make that switch? What was the difference in the dogs? You know, um, he's always stuck by both of those breeds being really strong mm-hmm. and, uh, and, you know, real similar to what he wanted. But he got more consistent bred animals out of the walkers. Okay. And so, you know, the way that I look at it, it's like kind of like a pointer and an English setter, mm-hmm. right? And both of them can be phenomenal breeds and, you know, phenomenal dogs. But depending on your area, you might have more concentration or easier to get one. Or, or maybe they just match up better with you. Right. Um, and, you're, you know, what you're looking for. Um, and so, and, you know, he, he, I remember some of them, they went back to a dog called Stylish Coma. Um, okay. And he, he won a bunch of championships, and we had a son of his that went on to win a lot of championships in, in uh, New York State. Okay. Um, and then uh, he had some rat attack dogs, um, and I think he had some stuff that went back to the Lipper breeding and uh, the Joe Don House's breeding, oh, wow. um, or Joe Don's father's breedings out of Kentucky. Okay, um, nice. And he, he's still got some, he's got some young prospects. Um, he, he doesn't trial them anymore, mm-hmm. but he's always enjoyed the development side of things and whether he, he's trialing at all, um, or he's developing a dog, it's always with the same purpose. Well, um, if that makes any sense. No, it definitely does. Um, I just want to kind of break you right there. Can you please allow me the opportunity to have your father on the podcast too. I've always wanted to speak to um, houndsmen and I, I never get a chance to. So at some yeah. point down the road. <laughs> uh, I, you know, he's, 
he's a pretty good guy to talk to about this stuff and he's okay. really uh he really enjoys his dogs uh probably more now than when i was a kid because we'd have up to 50 dogs when i was a kid what and oh yeah yeah we'd have two litters of pups at a time and i i think at the height of it we had a lot of started dogs that we were working mm -hmm. um but you know when you're doing that and then your two boys are in three sports a year right uh makes it pretty tough and my, my brother was a really good athlete. I mean, he was a good all-around athlete. And so, okay. um, you know, baseball in the summer, they went from, they were almost one game into the Little League World Series. You know, that wow. they were one game from. So, um, they were real competitive. So, it, it in that aspect, you know, you're always doing sports, and it's hard to um, do diligence to uh, your pounds as well, or your dogs. Right. So, well, and you got it's it's crazy because you have a very similar background as I do. So you grew up in the sport, so did I. And I think that's enough that may be another reason why I really enjoy your content and it seems to me like your your father passed down the whole development side of training bird dogs. Not coon dogs, but bird dogs. I mean you Dude, you sound like a scientist every time I talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm, I'm very analytical about things, and I, I probably overthink most of the stuff that I'm doing. Um, but I, I feel like that's the way I've always been, whether it was uh, athletics or anything else in life. Okay. If I was into it, I was trying to consume as much as possible. And because of that, I've actually stayed out of fly fishing as long as I possibly can. Because <laughs> I, I feel like, you know, I'm just going to be a bum if yeah. that's the case. And, uh, yeah, so. Okay, <laughs> things, okay. Things consume me, so, yeah. Dude, I'm I'm the same way. When I'm really into something, um, and I just mm -hmm. did like an Instagram live story. My It's funny, my wife just said this about myself, about me. Um, she was like, when I'm into something, I'm 1000%. That's how I even started a podcast. Cause I just felt like if anybody was going to talk bird dogs all day, well, hell, didn't nobody want to listen to it. At least I would. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. It, that's, that's a good way to start it too. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you learn a lot from it. Oh my gosh. I have, it, it, doing this podcast thing and then getting up every day, learning and reading, like I, and I'm an artist, I'm an athlete, and I do a lot of different things. So a lot of people look at me and they're just like, good Lord, are you, are you, when do you sit down? And I'm just like, I, I don't. Right, right. Yeah. I, and you know what? It, it's at this time in life, that's okay. I, right. I think at least, you know. Because right. uh, you're, I mean, you're, dude, you're my age group, man. We're all fairly young. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's. And I think that's, um, you know, we, we have less, it, it seems to me, we have less uh, working jobs, so to speak, mm -hmm. you know, like like kind of factory jobs that you go in and uh, you work, you know, seven to three every day. Mm -hmm. And then you come out, you, you, you hope to have a passion right. <laughs> other than drinking, you right. know, and <laughs> yeah, so it, it's, um, but I, I just can't sit still. I'm, I, man, I'm the same way. And so bird dogs, I mean it's 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 addicting and once you get a good dog man you just want to keep you want to keep developing then you get you find yourself with two which i'm about to find myself into and yep. it, it just keeps going and it's interesting um and i really want to get into i mean the nitty-gritty as much time as you have available so as an athlete okay and and this opened up the conversation i ran the 400 meter hurdles and yep. we talked about dog development and really developing the, the the lower half of the dog for a lot more drive and push. So talk about your background in track and field, and then we'll kind of segue that in there, because that was really cool. Yeah. Um, so I guess I started in junior high, you know, a small town. You know, we only have about 4,000 people, so you just did sports. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I started in track and field and cross country in seventh grade and just really, I always liked the sports that were individualized. Yeah. Um, 
I, I, this sounds really bad, and most people are going to disagree with this, but I don't like team sports. Um, I, I understand. I like watching them. Mm-hmm. You know, and I like having a track team. Um, but as I, I want to take responsibility for my failures and success. Wow. And um, and then also, you know, if I if my success benefits others, then you know I want to be in the shadow if I can. Nice. Um, okay. So it's kind of it's kind of a weird, almost seeming contradictory, but um, so you know I, I started off seventh grade running, and then uh, I was still wrestling at the time, and then I stopped wrestling uh, two years later, um, and I just focused on running. Um, I got serious about it my junior and senior year of high school, okay, and uh, transitioned into college, and I, I just stayed Division three, but okay. Um, was competitive all the way through and that analytical side of uh, looking at athletics and where I can benefit. It was always a coaching mindset and that's where, you know, looking at an athlete strengths, weaknesses, and it's just problem solving to get them to propel faster over the ground. Right. Right. Um, And so on the track, I've mostly focused on the steeplechase. Um, Good Lord, you are a beast. Uh, well, I, I just liked it. It was more like cross country than anything else on the track. You know? Look, I ran the 400 meter hurdles, dude, and I, I would not step foot on the steeplechase field. I'm good. Well, the, the 400 hurdles are one of the toughest events on the track. And I'm not saying that because of being on your podcast. <laughs> I, I literally mean that. Um, well then it's a mutual respect, man. Those <laughs> Oh, gosh. When it goes bad, it goes bad. Yes, it does. Uh, yeah. I I remember watching, uh, was it Brashawn Jackson? Mm-hmm. Was that little Batman? Yep, Batman, yep. Yeah, I, I used to love watching him on TV. Man. And uh, reading in the track and field news about him, he was amazing. He, you know, he's uh, from down here. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, later in life, actually, uh, learning more and more about uh, track and field development and stuff when I was collegiately coaching. Um, some of the best athletes out there uh, for football and baseball and other sports were tremendous track athletes. Yep. And um, TCU is a really good example of that. A lot of their football players uh, are hurdlers and um, sprinters. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at Baylor, um, RG3, uh, oh my gosh, he was brought in to run the hurdles Um and then they got him a football tryout. Wow! So most people don't know that about it. I mean, he he can do anything. Yeah, I didn't. Um, I did not know that about RG three. Yeah, he's. I and he wasn't there when I came into Baylor, but you know, just his legacy. Yeah. Um, and him being third in the NCAA's as a true freshman on the four hundred hurdles was pretty spectacular. Yeah. That's, so that's it, wild. It's a mature athlete's event. <laughs> yes, it is. It it for sure yeah. is. Well, like I said, it's definitely a mutual respect. Now, you worked with Michael Johnson's coach, right? Yes, uh, Clyde Hart. So, yeah. okay, we ain't even gotten to the dogs yet. You still blowing my mind. <laughs> How was that? Uh, honestly, it was one of my favorite times, um, and because. Clyde was serious, but he had this real joyful side when I was around. Like mm-hmm. he, you know, he was serious. You know, get your work done. Um, but you know, he's just a really cool guy to be around. Um, I really liked the coaches at Baylor when okay. I was working there, and um, Michael Ford. Um, he's the uh, more of the one hundred, two hundred, and that um, in that range mm-hmm. in the hurdles. Mm-hmm. And he's amazing. He really is. I, I, I don't like he analyzes and he's constantly learning and he's constantly going and trying to learn from others. Uh, he just doesn't stop. Wow. Um, and so he, uh, he, what's he and Clyde there, they're just phenomenal, uh, coaches to be around. Um, but Clyde was pretty funny. We'd be out at the track during the, um, uh, during the spring or, you know, winter to spring because winter is hit or miss with the weather. Right. And he'd, uh, he'd come over to me and he knew I lived about a half mile away and he'd say, you know, like, Ryan, 
why don't you go over there and get one of your bird dogs? Bring one of those pointers over to the track. <laughs> and I was like, all right, like, okay, I'll go over. So I'd go and I'd get one of the dogs. He goes, I heard you got a real pretty one. So bring that one over. And uh, <laughs> I had this little, this little patch eyed female and um, I'd bring her over and she'd just hang out with you. And uh, um, she is cool. Yeah. Um, and he just loved it. He loved bird dogs. All, all the Texans that I was around, um, you know, quail hunting was a big deal to them. Mm-hmm. Even if they'd only been once or twice in their life, it was a really big deal to them. Well, Texas people are very smart. They know they know what's good for them. <laughs> yes, they do. They do. Absolutely. Yeah, so, that's for sure. I have the biggest dream about going quail hunting in Texas. That's that's one of my bucket list places. I mean, I have a lot of bucket list hunts, but like that one is because, especially because it's not that far from Georgia, it's right. it's definitely on my bucket list, man. Um, and that's half the reason why, you know, I'm getting appointed because Texas is just so wide open, you know, yeah. it's, it's just wide open quail country. So speaking about wide open, you know, we were just talking about it and, you made a very funny comment about you know you couldn't do you couldn't keep your dog in for in a forty yard field. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'd never be able to run Nastra. I well for multiple reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I don't care if a dog retrieves or not. Like mm-hmm. I think it's cool, but I don't ever force them to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I and I have this theory um, that you know usually. They naturally want to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, even pointers naturally want to do it. Um, and so you just need a good hunting season over them. Yep. Um, but my dogs, I, I don't, they, they're they not designed to be in a 40-acre field. Right. Um, they're not built to be in a 40-acre field. I'd have to really chop them in. Right. And um, to me, it's just, it's different. Okay. Um, and, and I, I'm not putting it down at all. Um a lot of those dogs are quite amazing at what they do. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, but it's it's a different dog, and and depending on where you're at in the country, you got different dogs wherever you are. Right, right, right. So, and that is the, I guess, the regional aspect that I do appreciate about bird dogs. Now, it's it's my thought that regardless of where you are, if you've dialed your dog in. You know, correctly, there, there's some element of being able to adjust to the cover, but I mean, to the to the land. But again, if I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fault a dog for not necessarily being able to dial it in that close. If all I've been doing is running him that large. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Like there's there's a there's a give and take to it, you know, to well, me. Yeah. And, you know, uh, what I would say is. um so, in my personal opinion, the mm-hmm. Piney Woods is a really tough place to run a dog. Mm-hmm. Um, I and, and that's just from the experience I had. That that's uh, if you took a dog from the West and then you expect them in one season to adjust uh, to the Piney Woods, um, it's not it, it may not happen. Right? It's yep. a completely different country, and it, even some of the smartest dogs, it takes them a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Um, yeah, it just really depends. Uh, now, those dogs, the, the all-age dogs and the, the shooting dogs that are down there, um, you can you can uh, push and pull them wherever you want. Like, right. as as much as people think they're crazy, uh, a lot of those dogs, you can, you can direct them. They're very smooth. Right. And so that's the, uh, you know, we always talk about um, these dogs and, and a lot of people have this misconception that they're just lunatics. Oh, I hate that too. Yeah, that drives yeah. me up the wall. And some of them darn well are. I, I, I mean it. Like some of them are. They're they're unsettled animals. Right, but um, I mean that's to me that's no that's like I mean a Chihuahua can be a lunatic. I mean, right, yeah. exactly. Um, for a dog to consistently win in that country, they have to be a very special animal, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Yeah. Um, and and be very consistent and not just consistent on their game but they have to be consistent handling um their their runs um when they're being put into that country has to be almost flawless right and and especially you go to the continental which you know we were talking about that uh, mm-hmm. the other day 
the Continental had, I think, 75 dogs. And I believe certain years it goes upwards of 100. Um, and so you have a callback after that. But mm-hmm. those dogs, to get into that callback, they may only call back four dogs. They may call back 16. Right. It just depends on what the judges want to see. But th- those runs have to be flawless. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a part that you, if you're a rank animal and you're just a lunatic, it, it's very hard to get them right and to be consistent with it. Right. Absolutely. Um, so, and that, it, it kind of goes into the point of these handlers being um, so darn good at what they are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we often look at like gun dog trainers as being the best trainers out there because they fix problems left and right. Mm-hmm. And, we discredit or just disregard some of these handlers out there at what they do and how amazing they are at their task. Right. And, um, it, it, it's, it's tough for me now because even last year, I think I said something to somebody. I was like, well, you know, some of the best dog trainers are ones that get a dog over being gun shy or get a dog mm-hmm. over an issue that they're having. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a way that discrediting the finesse and ability that it takes to handle one of these all age dogs or, or shooting dogs right. on a major circuit and have them win consistently. Right. And that's, in a, you know, they're, they're on a solid piece of, uh, of a platform, so to speak of, um, what they're doing. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it's just, they're on a whole new level. Right. And, well, it, when, you know, and, and you said it about yourself, but I also uh, apply it to the dogs, just being very analytical, you know, yeah. to me, it sounds like what you're saying is basically like, look, you know, these guys are really good because they can fix a very specialized issue. If that you you see yeah. what I'm saying is it's yes. reaching down into the dog and really correcting that one little tweak where most trainers would honestly either give up or fall off or break the dog. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And and that's so important to not do that. And so, you know, just to kind of expound on that, let's talk about breaking a dog and and not the good kind of breaking a dog. Right. There's, there's a good way to do it and there's a bad way to do it. Um, Yeah. Um, Well, I think uh, every trainer or every, I, I would say any handler or anybody that has a dog, if they've got to find a way to uh, manage their animal mm-hmm. or uh, teach their animal their expectation around game. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I would say that I'm working with right now with the bloodlines that I'm working with uh, and having the access to um, a lot of wild birds, it's different than most people go through. Right. Um, so we are constantly practicing like we play. And this is actually my, my favorite time of the year to develop and, uh, and work, uh, bird dogs, um, after the, the hunting season. Um, I, I get more done right now than I do, uh, during the hunting season. Really? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So um, expound on that for me. So, um, in Idaho, um, or I should say in the Western States, um, you know, our weather starts changing gets a little bit nicer, gets into that spring weather where, you know, you get up to 60, 70 degree days. Mm-hmm. Um, but then birds start pairing up and that's the big, uh, changing point. So if I have a dog, like I've got one right now, she, she's a, she's a nice animal and I'm trying to, not, everybody calls them like a finished dog or something, but I'm just really trying to build her confidence around game of what she's doing is correct and to not chase. Okay. Um, so I'm trying to just keep the chase out of her and we're getting there. Um, but what these pairs of birds allow us to do is have, uh, more ability to work on more birds. Okay. Yep. Um, so, um, and for me, I like that, you know, I'm not chasing a major covey around. I'm not doing that stuff. And in fact, I hate chasing coveys. Um, even in the hunting season, I, I don't do it. Really? Um, I, if, if a dog points a covey, I never go after that covey. Hmm. Um, and, the, and there's, 
to me, it's like if that dog handles its game and, and I'm able to shoot a bird out of that cubby, I don't want to be shooting multiple birds out of it. I want mm-hmm. to shoot one and go on. Okay. Um, I think that's actually very responsible act also. I, and, and part of that is, you know, being respectful and responsible of the, the lands that you get to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, for me, I don't get, my ego doesn't <laughs> uh, jump from stacking a tailgate. Right. Um, you know, that's not me. That's not my style. Um, you know, I, I really get to appreciate the birds, but um, I don't care how many I shoot. Right. And it's never going into a hunt trying to shoot a limit. Right. It's never, ever. And in fact, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever shot a limit since uh, moving out here um, uh, to Boise. Well, so and and that's important to, um, you know, that's really important that you said that. So I I take a lot of pride from being from Georgia, right? And historically, Georgia is like old school quail country, plantation, all of that stuff, you know? Um, And it's nothing like what I've heard um, from the old guys in the past, right? It's just not, just because of a lot of different reasons. Well, even though it's not like that, I still make it a point to go down to the Red Hills, go down to Thomasville, to certain WMAs, and chase quail. I don't care how long it takes me to do it and all of that stuff. And, you know, we hiked 10 miles for two cubbies of birds, right? Nothing impressive, nothing like that. But what, what was important for me was the dog work. Number one, like you say, I'm, I'm not here. Hell is not that many quail in Georgia to be shooting up like that anyway. So I'm, I, I want to manage the habitat and I want to make sure that there's something else left, you know, and, and when, when you see the dogs be successful, that to me is, is worth its weight in gold versus stacking the back of a tailgate. You know, when my proofing grounds for my pointer are going to be down in Thomasville, I'll do all of this work. And yes, I will drive four hours away from Atlanta just to be (laughs) sure that, my dog is on point. And if not, then we just hit the uh, training grounds again and we'll do it over. Yep. yep. You know, but chasing coveys, like we had a covey of 15 bust up on us. I shot one bird out of that covey and my day was over, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, actually, I, I talk about this. Um, uh, do you follow uh, Border to Border? Yes, okay. I do. I do. So, um, Pat and Phil, and I, I talked about this with Phil the other day. He uh, he showed me a picture of uh, you know some people uh, hunting down there, and they just hunt like a mob. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, how many cubbies do you think they took out? And I was, you know, I just kind of chuckled to myself. I was like, well, I don't know. I don't really get into it. But even last year when I went down there, um, I have some good friends that go down, and they have their own hunting spaces, right? Mm-hmm. You know, their own hunting grounds. They manage their cubbies. Right. They they might hit at that spot and they may limit out and not touch it for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that to me is, uh, you know, being a steward of, of what you've got and being a student of what you've got and yeah. not, you know, and realizing like, we don't, re- I, I, we have a supermarket. Mm-hmm. Uh, as good as quail or chucker or any of these birds taste, you know, we don't have to have a freezer stacked full of them. Right. Um, and so now I'm not saying this to like put anyone else down. I'm just saying this is my perspective of it. Well, it's a, um, I think it's a shared perspective though, Ryan. Like I'm, I'm almost positive. I would be willing to put my money on anybody that's probably listening to this podcast shares the same sentiment. So trust me, I'm, I'm sure every, a lot of people get it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I actually, last year I, I hunted with Phil and I've never seen someone get so excited, uh, mm-hmm. over just, you know, one or two birds. Yep. And it was the coolest thing to me because he was getting into guiding with Pat at the time and he was in it for the right reasons. Yep. And it, that sheer joy, um, of seeing dogs work country and handle game and then uh, really being able to appreciate the game as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's really cool because there's not a lot of people around our age like the social media has changed so much oh my gosh yeah you know and and people are constantly stroking their egos of you know more is better and Mm -hmm. i just i don't see it that well and and like and i'll be totally frank and transparent and for anybody that i guess disagrees with me it's gonna be that way i have a uh, uh, I honestly don't understand, and, and I have a lab, right? I don't understand yep. how people go out like duck hunting and they're like, oh, well, we got a five-man limit, a six-man limit, a seven, eight, nine-man limit. I First of all, I don't know what that means as far as like what the actual <laughs> limit number is. So five times whatever, six times whatever. But yeah. again, I'm seeing these, and, and it's, it's starting to... I, I guess I can I can enjoy it for the fact that okay these people went out and had a clearly had a good hunt, but after yeah. I see a mound of ducks on your tailgate, I mean where's the story? Like there's nothing about the dog work. You right. know what I'm saying? It, it, it's just okay. We got a mound of birds. Well, shit, man. Yeah. For all of yeah. that. You didn't need a dog. You just put on some waders and walk on out and then pick your birds up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, and, and that's that's a perspective I think um, for me and uh, for a lot of others is you know that dog is everything. Mm-hmm. Um, me too. And that's that that performance of them on the ground um, as an athlete it means quite a bit. And it's the same thing if you go to a field trial and being able to appreciate. Um, the high-end athlete. Yeah. I mean, that's really what they are. Um, they are elite athletes um, mm-hmm. when you go to these field trials. And um, when you get to the championships, those are all elite athletes. Mm-hmm. And and then getting down into our hunting dogs, you know, we can still have good expectations of them um, and and still have great hunts. So oh, yeah. It, it's just, it's all about the dog work. Right. Um, yeah, that's what it comes down to for me. Um, I I totally agree. And again, that's why you're on here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. For sure. So l- moving forward, um, you know, just kind of moving forward, I I'm really captivated by history, right? Like and and I'm really learning the game. I've been in this thing about three years now and it's guys like Delmar Smith. It's it's gentlemen like Bud Moore who I've had on the podcast, and I text him frequently, right? I mean, he was yeah. literally Delmar Smith sat him under a tree and said, Hey, sit here all day and figure out these birds. Like it's it's yep. it's it's the moments like that. It's guys down here, um, African American folks, Neil Carter Jr., who left an impression on me. You know. All of these guys, what do you think it was that they figured out? And, and this is kind of a, I don't think I, I had this on the list, but I want to ask you, what do you think yeah. it was that they were figuring out that's impacted the way you and I and so many other trainers, like my buddy Richard and things like that, have figured out? What do you, what do you think it was for them? Well, uh, if you go from a field traveler's perspective, yep. um, it's developing a dog uh, in order to handle game and win these championships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of them, um, I, if you look at Robin Gates on the all-age circuit, I mean, mm-hmm. he's just, he's amazing. I, he really is. And when I uh, when I was down south, that was the one thing that um, the pro I worked for, he said, if you ever get a chance to watch Robin Gates, he said, you sit as far forward in that gallery as you can and you just watch Right. He said he is tremendous at doing that. And so I think you, you had people that were figuring out an equation of Mm -hmm. success and, but they had to work awful hard for it. And, um, and so I guess maybe if that answers, um, like Delmar had to create a way to train dogs for the masses. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and those old time trainers, we don't hear about it, but the Tracy's George told me that, um, he and his dad, uh, Gerald, yep. they would work, they would work over 200 dogs when he wow. was a kid. Yeah. And he, he just said like, we, we had the birds to work and we had the wild birds at the time. 
Mm-hmm. And he said we had all different breeds and we just, we worked dogs from, you know, dust to dawn. Or, or yeah, dawn to dusk. Uh, right. And it's just, uh, yeah, all day long, that's what they did. And, um, and the work ethic that they had was uh, a little different, I think. You know, it's a different day and age. Oh, yeah. I, um, I, I think that's why I adore those guys so much. Um, whether it be hunting, whether it be trialing, um, and maybe if it's just training, like to be able to have the resources of wild birds, like, I don't care what hunting supply store that you go to, right? You will never be able to buy a wild bird. No, you're just not going to, um, Go ahead. You're right. <laughs> the the experience that a dog can have um, from being around wild game, mm-hmm. uh, wild birds, is, is just it's second to none in my opinion. Right. Um, and so that's I guess that's part of why I moved back west. Um, and you know, Boise is a really good area to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got uh, tremendous friends and mentors here. Um, uh, Rich Eaton and Kim Sampson um, have been wonderful to me over mm-hmm. the years, and they they taught me a lot more about. And Rich is, Rich is, uh, I think, very underrated with his ability uh, to work a bird dog really? um, on wild birds. He's very very good at it. Um, yeah, he's well, just, talk about him some. What tell, tell us about him? Well. Um, I, I didn't know that much about Rich um, until I got out here a little bit more. Like he, he and I were good friends, I guess, but we we didn't. I didn't know him that well, mm-hmm. and we'd chat, you know, every other day. And um, he he honestly helped me through some hard times uh, and just uh, keep in perspective and helped me when I moved out to Boise mm-hmm. and uh, gave me a place to put dogs. And you know, he was just real good to me, and I he would take me along to work dogs. Um, and kind of going back and, um, backtracking here. My, my oldest pointer, um, is out of a dog called Idaho's lucky strike mm-hmm. and Idaho's lucky strike won, I believe six championships and he was five time runner up. Wow. And I believe he qualified for the national four or five years in a row. I, I believe it was four, but, um, and so I, Really, this dog was owned by Rich, and he's he's still alive. He's kicking. He's alive and kicking there. Um, but um, Rich developed him and uh, won a lot with him. Mm-hmm. And and then I bought a son out of him because I saw some of the dogs that Kim Sampson was developing um, out of her tremendous female that they crossed to Lucky Strike, and they were amazing to me. Um, they were tremendous wild bird dogs at an early age. And so, yeah, it was just, and I got up here and I got to watch Rich, um, work a dog on the horse and just, you know, I'm not going to say he's the best in the world. I'm never going to say that. Yeah. Uh, but he's special to you. He's, he's really, really good in my eyes. And, uh, I've gotten to learn quite a bit about how he handles dogs in the game. And, um, He's always learning. And so um, it, it's been really special for me to be around him and Kim. Um, and they, they're just, they're good at what they do. And they are people that are great mentors as well. Right. Okay. So. I mean, and yeah. I, I think you need that. Um, Absolutely. I, I, I think everybody needs to find someone that they aspire to. I, I think that's, an honest statement and, or, and, and at least I do, like I, I say it all the time, but you know, maybe my Rich Heaton, I mean, maybe your Rich Heaton is, is my Neil Carter Jr. And is damn sure my buddy, um, Richard Mumpower. Like, I just think he, Richard is a damn good trainer. Like, and I get a chance to, to field trial with him and I'm blessed to have him as a friend. I really think it's important for folks to, Really look at the focus. Find somebody that came ahead of you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. You learn a lot about the dogs too Mm -hmm. that you're working. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you know, within the pointer breed, um, we've got so many different lines of blood. Um, 
you know, and, and that that's something like every one of them has slightly different characteristics. Right. Right. And, you know, kind of what we talked about with the coon hounds and my dad, but you know, you got to find what works for you. Um, yeah. what works in your part of the country and then what works, uh, that's, uh, motivating for you to go and get yourself out there and work them. And then, you know, what works for you is part of the, the mentality amongst that dog and, and, uh, your relationship with them. Right. Cause there's some dogs that you may just not like. Right. And it doesn't matter if they're national champion or not. Um, you just don't want to work them. And so you, you got to find what you like to work and, um, and what motivates you, I think more than anything. So, um, all the stuff that Rich has goes back to Redwater Rex. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the original Elhu outcrosses, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm an Elhu fan. So you talking my language. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually all of my dogs go back to Elhu blood. Okay. Um, in one way or another, they all go back to Elhu blood. Okay. 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 um, And I was about to say, you know, I, um, I really want to later on down the line, I want to talk a bit about that and some of the distinctions, or if you want to talk about it now, but some of the distinction in, in some of the pointer bloodlines and you don't have to go too far into it, but I'm really captivated by your LHU dogs, your white knight dogs, and you know, things like that. Um, what are some of the things that you've noticed about the variances in bloodlines? If, if that's something you can speak on. Yeah. Um, so in my experiences with them, um, I've had some Miller bred dogs. I've Mm -hmm. had some, uh, honky tonk bred dogs that I worked with. Um, I've had fiddler bred, you know, which is basically honky tonk, but, um, uh, calico whippoorwill, um, I mean, it's been kind of across the board. Um, I can't say that one's necessarily better than the other, but because my my whole standard of any dog is they have to hunt, right? Without a shadow of a doubt, and not all of them do. Um, and so that that dog could be winning big on a circuit, and um, they may not be a real hard hunting dog, but they may be a, a gorgeous looking animal in motion, right? And, and pointed, you know, but are they, are they going to really dig into the country and find game? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there's differences. And that's why I said, you know, some people like certain ones more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certain guys, especially in the, the grouse woods, they will swear up and down that you have to have an LHU bred dog. Mm-hmm. Um, I like very specific LHU blood. Um, and I don't, I, there's been some really good stuff out there um, that has kind of been under the radar um, that Bob Whaley didn't own. And mm. um, and that, that's stuff that I really like um, as well. Uh, they were more uh, all age for some of them and, and some real hard driving shooting dogs. Yeah. So. Okay. Okay. Look, you, you you getting me more excited, man. I uh I just left a Nastra trial, man, and I got a chance to uh I got a chance to see a dog out of Pine Hill Kennels where I'm getting my pointer from. Um yep. it literally Damascus bloodline, you know, so on and so forth. And all of these dogs are uh traced back to Snakefoot and Magoo. Yep. Um for me, and, and then my buddy Richard ran his short hair. I shot for him, but he ran his short hair against um, Alabama's national champion. And I was, or last year's uh, Alabama's champion. And mm-hmm. watching the the uh, anatomy of that dog pulling, and we're, and we're speaking in track language, watching yeah. th- that dog's front shoulders literally dig and pull, yeah. while those those back legs were propelling it like two pistons. Yeah. You know, and, and and so much so you can see the dog's muscles flex while he was running. You know, the anatomy of the dog is very captivating to me. Yeah. You know, and, and the dog hits a point so hard he kick up dirt and that tail standing straight, you know, twelve it, it, it almost scares me how how excited I get about a dog like that. <laughs> well I and my 
years, uh, and I'm not that old, but in my experience of it, I don't think it ever gets old. It um, doesn't. Mm-mm. You know, and especially you, you put more into the uh, the canine athlete than you do the aesthetic yep. of it. Yep. But you just invest in that that individual athlete. Um, yep. And, you know, and that's the more that you're able to do that, like training certain dogs, the better it is for that dog. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So just like, just like a track and field athlete. Absolutely. So now in reference to track now, speed and strength are the two things that are going to make an athlete just better than the next. You know, it's it's the difference between first and second place. We're talking about core strength and we're talking about posterior strength. And I really want to do that. So I train my lab and I'm going to train my dog. I got this huge hill in my backyard. Right. Um, And every day, day in and day out, it is a non-negotiable my dog, whether he's fetching or whether I'm just doing, it doesn't matter. You're running that hill, right? Just like yeah. track practice. And we yeah. all hated it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, Talk about uh, building up a dog's posterior strength. Go ahead. Um, so, you know, that's one thing that um, that, that really is going to carry the efficiency of these animals. Um, you see it a lot where dogs will be in a harness off of a four-wheeler or an ATV, Um and they'll be doing what we call roading or conditioning the dog. Mm-hmm. And um, they do it for a period of time. And that do- that dog being in the harness is pulling the whole time. Well, right. it should be at least. And uh, it's almost like a sled dog type of, you know, idea here. Mm-hmm. And um, the way that a lot of the guys do down in the South, and uh, they do it all over the country, but um, they rode them from the horse yep. a lot of times. And, you know, we we used to couple together four dogs at the time and uh, put, you know, the check cord on the, the saddle. And then you just put that horse in a walk and they would just uh, power walk with it, mm-hmm. you know, and you forward and power walking and you do it for an hour or more and then you put them up. And, but what it's doing is it's, um, it's low intensity, right? So the dog's not running too hard for things to break down necessarily. And you're building, um, stabilizing muscles yeah and so within that um you you're helping the overall efficiency of that athlete and and it's really hard um if you compare to a human like we can manipulate a human's training right where it's different right right um with certain canine athletes you'd have to go to extreme lengths um to in order to do that right um to to change their genetic makeup uh, of physicality we'd have to go to extreme measures and most people don't have time for that so my my suggestion would be to get a really well-bred dog that that can handle the endurance that you want right no (laughs) i agree i definitely agree and one that's got real strong back to it um and a real strong tail set and um that that's that's my personal opinion you know not they're not all the same and uh and even when you think there's going to be tremendous athletes coming out of a breeding, it may not be. Right. So well, you know, we always hope for the best. And you said something important, a strong back and a strong tail set. That tail set is something I'm very interested in. So Delmar talked about um, the higher that dog's tail is, it's like yeah. a piece of muscle that is essentially opened up and it gives yeah. that dog a, like that much more of an edge over the next. Yeah. Um, it, it can, uh, I don't, I don't know, you know, he's seen more dogs than me. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, uh, he probably, I'll probably never see that many animals. Um, <laughs> you know, but what I would say, and a couple people have gotten this debate, um, I think that a dog can have its hips cocked too much, okay. you know, like, um, I mean, imagine being a runner and you're running with your ass out the whole time, right? Right. Instead of your hip, uh, up underneath your pelvis or the rest of your body. Um, if your pelvis is cocked back and you're running, you don't have your knee drive, right? Right. Um, so imagine if your, your pelvis was rocked too much and your tail was too high. Well, you're not able to get the same range of motion up underneath for your leverage. Well, it's right? counterproductive at that point. Exactly. So I think there's a balance within it. Okay. Um, I, I, I really think there's a, um, a balance. So, you know, it's, uh, that's what I would say. You know, you, you, the biggest part that you can do is like 
an owner or someone that's trying to find dogs, uh, you want to go and watch the parents. Yeah. And, um, and then if you have the money to go and buy a started dog or a dog that's, you know, really doing something special, then you go and you watch that dog before you buy it. And, um, you know, that's, that's rule number one. If you're buying a dog, that's not a puppy, go and watch it on the ground first. Oh you know? my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I, and you yeah. want to know what though, Ryan, I think that, it's part of the prospective owner's responsibility, but I also think, and I and I will speak, um, I will speak very highly on Pine Hill, uh, Gary Surratt, where I'm getting my dog. Yep. Every time I've spoke to Gary, Gary said, "When you get here, we are going to take Mama and Daddy out and run those dogs." I think that's very important for the breeder to be you know to reassure the new owner like look this is what i'm working with right i i yep. think it's a huge responsibility it is um no without a doubt and that's you know pine hill has been breeding for so many years and you know they've got they they find a responsibility and that's what a lot of the big time breeders they've got a responsibility to their clients and their customers and they need to uphold that. And so otherwise over time, they're going to lose clientele. Mm -hmm. And so their, their breeding program has to be on par and they've got to make sure that their dogs are healthy. Um, you know, it's just part of the process. And, mm -hmm. and now that we've got the social media, the way that we do, um, there's more information out there now. Yep. Yep. And we have less and less old timer, like old time style where you just show up and just, someone tosses you a pup and right. takes your money. Well, and um, that, and, and see, I, you hear a lot of old timers. I'm sorry not to cut you off my bad. Um, oh, no, no, you're good. I wanted to add to that. You hear a lot of old timers talk about how the dogs of today were so much better than what they had back in the day. Right. Yeah. yeah. Part of that, I think to your point has a lot to do with, you didn't really know what you were getting back then. And right. it, it, there's a level of force that had to go into that in order for us to get the dogs that we have now. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, to add to it, I think part of the breeding process and, um, uh, just with dogs in general now is we do more nurturing at a younger age. Like we're, we're putting our hands on dogs, you know, at a day old mm -hmm. and, um, where before they might let, they might have multiple litters of pups right. near the same time. And they're looking for field trial prospects, right? So the ones that weren't prospects were sold as hunting dogs. Mm -hmm. um, but now we're looking at more of them as, well, maybe this one could be the winner. And I think in a way we're putting more time into specific litters because we can't so-called like waste any of them. Right. If that makes sense. Right. Um, we can't take chances. You got to have a sound animal. And we found that, the more um, humanization that they have to a certain degree is beneficial. Right. So, yeah, it's just part of it. Um, and you learn from others too. Um, that's why when anything's out there from Farrell Miller or George Hickok or, you know, or Delmar, that's why so many people key into it is because, okay, what can I gain from this? Right. What can I learn? Uh, what are they doing that I could implement into my program? Mm -hmm. Because I want better dogs. And, well, uh, you know, so. Yeah. And I, and I think that's why we have so many good podcasts from, from uh, you know, I hope I'm not speaking arrogantly, but mine to Project Upland to uh, Ronald Baines, who mm -hmm. we're all talking to these guys that they just been there before us. Right. Yeah. So yes. the benefit yeah. of, of, of this new information is. You're in Idaho. I'm in Georgia. We share information. I can go and get a George Hickox, you know, DVD shipped to my house. Yep. Learn, you know, take a little bit from that. Speak to Bud more. Take some from that. Talk, you see what I'm saying? And, and, yep. and, you know, it's almost frustrating to me that we don't have more dog trainers. Well, I, I think it'll happen. Um, there's going to be a, a wave of change here. Um, and I, I believe, uh, obviously, with the next generation, we've got some really up-and-coming guys. Um, 
uh, Tommy Rice being one of them mm-hmm. down in uh, Thomasville. And um, they're, they're really good younger guys that are coming up through. Right. Um, but there's a lot of people that have never been exposed to the field trial game. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, and I'm not out there trialing right now. Like that's something I, I aspire to do right. uh, to develop Derby dogs. Um, that's really what I want. But you know, I'm constantly working dogs on wild birds. Right. Well, so these guys are doing it at the highest level. That is their job. You know, in the summer they are up on the prairies. They are working dogs on wild birds the whole summer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mid July on, and then they're running some championship trials and they're headed down to the piney woods. And so they're making that um, migration or pilgrimage, whatever you want to call it, and they're covering thousands upon thousands of miles every year because it's not just income, but it's also something that they're constantly trying to develop.